Lord Jesus, we praise you. We praise you because you are worthy of praise. We praise you this week as we think about your last week on earth. We praise you for your perfect life and for your faithfulness to the very end, to your death on the cross. We praise you because you're alive now. And Lord, now as we open your word this morning uh, to see how you lived your last week on this earth, we pray that you will give us fresh eyes and open heart to see the story in a fresh way, Lord. Many of us, if we've grown up in church, know it well, uh, but I pray that we will see it in a fresh way this morning so that we may grow in our love for you and our trust of you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Since Shelley and I moved to Port Washington almost three years ago at this point, we've had the opportunity, opportunity to welcome quite a few friends and family members uh, to visit us here in Port. And one of the fun things that we get to experience when someone new comes is the opportunity to show them around. Uh, if we know them pretty well, uh, it's likely that we may give them a tour of our house. Uh, but for almost everyone who comes and visits us, we give them some sort of tour of the church. Uh, this is where I spend a lot of time. This is a very significant part of our lives. So we just show them around the church a little bit. And then oftentimes, if there's time, we give them a tour of Port Washington as well. Uh, some of the things we'll do is we'll drive up to Upper Lake Park, uh, show them the view of the lake, go to Possibility Playground and play the cool musical instruments there and, and feel the sponginess of the ground in Possibility Playground. Uh, we'll go down to the harbor and look out at the boats there. We'll um, walk through downtown, and if, if I'm really lucky, we'll get some ice cream. Um, it's just fun to give tours of the place where we live. This is a very common thing to do when people come visit us. You may experience the same thing when new people visit you. Um, but one of the things I've noticed as we've given tours, whether it's of our house or of the church or of the community, is that oftentimes I view things a little differently when I'm giving a tour to a newcomer than I typically view those things uh, when I'm just going through my day-to-day -day life. You see, when I'm going through day-to-day -day life, I, I take for granted the things that I see. I, I see them every day. And, and I oftentimes miss the little details of, of what's there. Uh, but then when I'm giving a tour to a newcomer, I'm oftentimes thinking about things through their eyes, wondering, hmm, wonder how this looks from them, or from their perspective, through their eyes. Sometimes I'll, I'll gain a greater appreciation for something that I've taken for granted oftentimes. Or sometimes I'll see something that needs to be worked on or repaired or cleaned that in day-to-day -day life I really don't notice it too much. But then when I'm showing someone through the house or through the church, I may think, whoa, there's a place where there's a hole in the wall and someone spackled it or, or, or covered it over, but they haven't painted it yet. And so we need to take care of that. Or, or wow, my desk is a real mess. I don't really notice it on a day-to-day -day basis, but hey, there's someone new here. I'm noticing it now because I'm seeing things through their eyes. Uh, a, a solid Christian and a, a professor named Dallas Willard, he teaches at USC, he wrote a book a number of years ago on the Sermon on the Mount. And he said in that book that in, in terms of the Sermon on the Mount, that familiarity has bred unfamiliarity. We become so familiar with something and, and, and take it for granted so often that we actually become a bit unfamiliar with it in terms of losing its sense of significance or losing our awe of that thing. And I, I think the same can be said of a lot of our surroundings. That's oftentimes what happens when I'm giving tours, that um, I'm looking at things with fresh eyes uh, through someone else's eyes rather than through my eyes that I typically use uh, when I'm going through life. Um, and I think it's the same case when we come to this time around Easter. 
especially if, if you're someone who's been around church for any length of time, uh, you know that every year we come up to what we call Holy Week, uh, the, the week leading up to uh, Jesus' death and his resurrection. We know how the story goes. We know the story of the triumphal entry. We know about the Last Supper. We know about Jesus being betrayed. We know about Peter denying Christ. We know about Jesus being crucified. And we know the ending of the story that three days later Jesus is going to rise from the dead. And we know these stories if we've been in church much at all. And sometimes it's very easy for the familiarity of that story to cause us to lose that sense of awe and wonder of who Jesus is and what he's going through. But then also lose that sense of despair and sorrow that really should be there as we enter those last couple days of Jesus' earthly life. So today, as we're looking at the last week of Jesus' life, I want to look at it through a different perspective than our 21st century perspective. It's one thing to look at uh, the story of Christ from now, and I mean, we know the whole story from beginning to end, or at least we can know it. But I want to look at it today from the perspective of Jesus' disciples. Because Jesus' disciples, as they were going through life, as they were going through that last week, I mean, they experienced a roller coaster of emotions. They didn't know how it was going to end. Yes, Jesus dropped a lot of very significant hints along the way, but the disciples really didn't internalize those hints. They didn't understand exactly what was going to happen next. So today we're going to look at the final week of Jesus' life. And as we do so, we're going to do so through the eyes of his disciples, trying to gain a fresh perspective to help us to see things in a new way, in a fresh way, to help us experience what the disciples would have experienced. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. If you didn't bring a Bible but would like to follow along, uh, there are Bibles in the pews or the chairs in front of you. Uh, for this week and next week, we are, we're taking a two-week break from our normal series called Follower Apps. That's a series where we're going through the book of James. But because of this time of year, when we're celebrating Jesus' final week on earth and Easter, we're taking a break from that. And today, we're, we're doing a quick look at, at Jesus' life during his last week, from the time of what's known as his triumphal entry, all the way through the Last Supper. And it's a span of several days. We're going to be looking at several different passages of Scripture um, there's more to the story than we're going to cover today. Uh, as Pastor David already mentioned, we strongly encourage you to come back to the Good Friday service on this Friday night. For me, Good Friday service is one of the most fun services of the year to plan uh, because it's a very significant event, but also because we get to be very creative with it. Um, and so we encourage you to come back on Friday night at 6.30 for that and then come back uh, to celebrate Jesus' resurrection on Sunday morning. But again, today we're following Jesus from uh, Triumphal Entry through the Last Supper. And we're going to be looking at five critical scenes through the eyes of his disciples to really understand what was going on during Holy Week. And the first scene we're going to look at begins right at the beginning of, of chapter 21 with the triumphal entry. So I invite you to follow along as I read Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1, where Matthew writes, he writes about Jesus and his disciples that as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, or if anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, 
and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So what we see here is Jesus' triumphal entry. He's entering the city. um, And as I look at this from the perspective of the the disciples, I would think they would have to be quite excited about what's taking place here. Uh, These are men and then women who are also associated with Jesus who've been with him for several years now. They've placed a lot of their hope in Christ. They've placed a lot of their identity in being associated with Christ. They believe that he is the promised Messiah. And here he comes into Jerusalem Um, really with a king's sort of entrance into the city. But what we see taking place here are that plans are being fulfilled. And I would think this would give the disciples tremendous confidence in what's taking place. First of all, on a small scale, Jesus tells them, hey, go ahead to the city or the village ahead of you. You'll find a donkey right there. If anyone says anything to you, just tell them this and this and this. And then you'll be able to bring the donkey back. And then they go and do that, find everything as Jesus has said, and they bring the donkey right back to Jesus. And I think that would be very confidence-inspiring if I were one of the disciples. Because, I mean, it's pretty impressive to know exactly where the donkey's going to be and exactly what it's going to take to bring that donkey back to Jesus. And for the disciples to find everything exactly as Jesus said, that would be very confidence-inspiring in my mind. But on a bigger scale, there are plans being fulfilled in terms of prophecy uh, it's, it's being fulfilled. We see Matthew quote from the prophet Zechariah who lived uh, hundreds of years before the time of Christ. Zechariah talked about Jesus coming into Jerusalem at this point, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, this is referring to, Say to Jerusalem, See your king comes to you. Gentleman riding on a donkey. And, and this is talking about Jesus' triumphal entry. So Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy that, that the prophet told about hundreds of years before the time of Christ. So plans are being fulfilled. And what's taking place here is a procession really for a king. You think about today we talk about laying a a red carpet entrance, laying out the red carpet for a VIP who's coming in. It's the same thing that's taking place then. Um, Last night, my wife Shelly went with Carissa, who's our worship team leader. They went to West Bend uh, because there was a special family in West Bend that they wanted to see. They're known as the Duggar family. If you, if, you, if you aren't familiar with the Duggar family, uh, they're on uh, TLC on a TV show called uh, 19 Kids and Counting. Uh, they're very solid Christians. Uh, Shelley really likes that TV show, as do a lot of other people. And so Shelley and Chris got word that the Duggars were going to be at this church in West Bend last night. And so they drove over there, and they, they got their seats, got really good seats because they got there early. And there was a buzz in the crowd, just excited to see the Duggars. And, but the Duggars weren't there yet. But they could tell instantly when the bus pulled up outside the church. You see, uh, the church in the back had, it was all windows. So you could see out into the parking lot and people saw the bus pull up. And a buzz went through the crowd. And Shelley was telling me how amazing it was to see the crowd's response there. That even before a single Duggar had stepped off the bus, that people had their cameras out there taking pictures of the bus. They were just looking for that very first glimpse of any member of the Duggar family. And they were so excited to see this family who's on TV. And that's what we do for a celebrity. But these people in Jerusalem were welcoming not just a celebrity, but someone they saw as the promised Messiah. 
Someone who the Jews have been looking forward to for centuries upon centuries. And they're giving him the red carpet treatment. We see that they're laying their cloaks on the road in front of Jesus. They're taking palm branches just like we have this morning and laying them on the road in front of Jesus as their form of the red carpet. Because in their mind, they're welcoming a king. And we see that also through what they're saying. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. That's a reference to to praise Jesus. We believe he is the king. And they're giving great praise to Jesus. And as I said earlier, I think this just has to warm the disciples' hearts. Because for years, they have believed that Jesus is the Messiah. I even think back to before Jesus called any disciples to come follow him. Um, there, there were, there's Andrew and then his brother Simon. Simon later became known as Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. But Andrew was acquainted with Jesus through John the Baptist. Um, Andrew believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Andrew went to his brother Simon and said, We have found the Messiah. And from then on, both Andrew and Simon were devoted to following Jesus. And it's the same case with the rest of the disciples, too. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they devoted their lives to following him. And so I just think about how gratifying that must have been for those disciples. Uh, being in this train of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, to all the, the shouts and the excitement and the, the people giving the red, cart, red carpet treatment to Jesus. And how gratifying that must have been to think now Jesus is finally going to establish his kingdom on earth. They believe that's what the Messiah was going to do. They were so excited, and I imagine them just being swept up in the emotion of it all. But then we come to scene two, and scene two actually ratchets up what I perceive to be the excitement level of the disciples. Scene two is when Jesus clears the temple. It happens very next after the triumphal entry. We see in verse 12 that right after Jesus entered Jerusalem, he entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it into a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children standing in the temple area uh, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Now, what we see here is Jesus really clearing out the temple. It's a pretty bold move by Jesus. And it makes sense on how he got there to the temple area. If you look at a map, uh, Jesus entered Jerusalem from the east. Um, He entered it from the east. And the first place he would come to once he got to Jerusalem was the temple. And once he got there, he began exerting his authority right away. Um, he, he, He saw that there were a bunch of tables and booths set up right there in the temple. To, to, to sell animals and to exchange money. And it makes sense that these things would have to be somewhere in the city because uh, this time in Jerusalem was a major festival called Passover. There were Jews coming from all over the nation uh, to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And a part of the celebration was uh, to have sacrifices. But you can imagine if people are traveling for days, they're not going to bring their own animals with them. So they're going to have to purchase animals for sacrifice once they get there. And so it makes sense that there would be some selling of animals there. And a number of them would have currency that's not the same as that used in Jerusalem. So there would be money changers to help them exchange their currency into what's accepted in Jerusalem. Now, I think that what Jesus has a problem with is not so much that these things are taking place, but it's where they are taking place. That the priests have allowed this money changing and this selling to take place right there in the temple. 
He says the temple is to be a, a house of prayer. It's a place where people can, can seek God in peacefulness rather than in a bunch of commotion. I mean, think about the commotion of a local shopping mall. That's what it would have been like there in the temple. And it would be really hard for anyone to really quiet their hearts and to seek God there. And so Jesus just drives them all out. I mean, that's a bold move. It's one thing to drive out one person. It's another thing to drive out a whole strip mall worth of vendors and of money changers. But that's what Jesus does. But the religious leaders, as they see the things that he is doing, they are indignant. It actually says that uh, right here in verse 15, these religious leaders, they saw what he was doing. They heard what the people were saying, and they are indignant. I mean, you, you can imagine it from their perspective. They're wondering, who is this man? I mean, he's some uneducated carpenter who is an itinerant preacher, and, and he's attracted a bit of a following. But who is this guy to come into our temple and drive people out when we've given them permission to be here? But then you think about the disciples from their perspective. They're probably thinking, wow, Jesus, this is a pretty bold move. But it's pretty exciting to see what you're doing. You're exerting your authority as the Messiah ought to. We can't wait until very soon when you set up your kingdom right here in Jerusalem. Now we come to the next scene, scene three, uh, which um, jumps ahead to just a couple passages later. Um, as the religious leaders have had enough with Jesus, and they begin to question him, asking him, where do you get this authority? We'll jump down to Matthew 21, verse 23. It says, uh, the next day Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? So what they're doing is basically coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, who gave you this authority to do with these things that you're doing around here? I mean, really, this question, this showdown that's taking place right here has been a long time in the making. If you look back through the context of the first 20 chapters of Matthew, we know that the religious leaders have not really gotten along with Jesus at any time in there. And they're probably looking at him right now, saying in their minds and maybe even to him, Jesus, what are you doing? You're a nobody. Your followers are nobodies. I mean, you're, you eat leisurely meals with sinners, and you desecrate our Sabbath laws, and you, you reinterpret our scriptures saying you're, that your interpretation of our scriptures is the right interpretation. And then you come into our temple and drive people out of our temple that we've said can be there. Who are you to do that type of stuff? I mean, you're, you're just a little pipsqueak in our view. And so they ask him, where do you get this authority to do what you're doing? And Jesus doesn't give them um, a direct answer. Instead, he gives what I would think would be a very infuriating response from the perspective of the religious leaders. He says in verse 24, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, referring to John the Baptist. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? And really what Jesus did is put them between a rock and a hard place. I mean, if they give answer A that John's baptism and his ministry was from God, from heaven... They would basically be saying, well, Jesus, I guess we see that your authority is from heaven because John the Baptist um, gave Jesus his official sanction and said that Jesus is from God. And so if they say that John the Baptist is operating under God's authority, then Jesus is too. So they can't answer that. They can't give answer B either. Answer B is saying that, well, John's authority comes from human beings because they knew that there would be a riot that would start because John the Baptist was so revered. 
And so their response was really a non-response. They said, we don't know. And then Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now, I imagine the religious, religious leaders at that time were just incredibly upset with Jesus. And we see multiple times in the coming days that they continue to bring questions to him to try to stymie him. Uh, they bring him a political question about, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And he stymies them then. They bring him three, three, three theological questions, trying to get him in trouble with the religious authorities of the day. He offers answers they can't respond to. And we see that eventually they get to the point where they say, you know what, we're not even going to ask him any more questions. And along the way, Jesus is telling a bunch of parables about how his kingdom is coming. And, and I imagine that in all this, Jesus stymieing the religious leaders in these parables he's telling and, and saying that his authority comes from God, I imagine the disciples are getting more and more confidence in who Jesus is. More and more confidence that his kingdom is about to come. And they, just, they must be thinking, this is awesome right here. No one can stand up to Jesus. He is in control. He is the one running this show. But then as we move over to scene four, we see that the tide changes dramatically. There's a plot that's starting against Jesus. Uh, there's, there's been a plot for a long time against Jesus, but now it's really getting organized. It's really gaining momentum. And it's a plot by the religious authorities to take Jesus out. It's a, th- it's a plot, a plan to kill Jesus. If you flip over a few pages to Matthew chapter 26, we see this taking place. Matthew 26, verses 3 through 5, it says that the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. Verse 4, it says they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. So we see that the chief priests are putting together a very solid plan to kill Jesus. Not only did they have a plan to kill Jesus, but there was a man who agreed to betray Jesus. And this man was one of the 12 disciples, Judas Iscariot. Down in verse 14, we see that then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, if life is like a roller coaster, which, I mean, for the disciples definitely is here in this last week. They've been all excited and things are going great. But if life is like a roller coaster, I think this would be the time in the roller coaster that the disciples would feel like throwing up. Because they've put so much energy, so much hope, so much of their life in Jesus. And now um, they're getting little inklings that's all about to come crashing down. They were hoping that he would establish a political kingdom and expel the Roman Empire from Israel. But now there are people who are about to derail those plans, who are about to have Jesus killed and even betrayed. And I think about the conversations I've had with people through the years where they're in very dire circumstances and, and just, I mean, feel like their world is turned upside down, whether it's by a, a very bad medical diagnosis or uh, the loss of a loved one or loss of a job. And, I mean, you probably have experienced things like that in your life or those close to you. And you know how that feels when your life is turned upside down. You don't know where you're going to be able to turn next. And I imagine that's how the disciples felt at this point. They didn't know, even though Jesus had told them he's going to die and be resurrected, somehow they had internalized that. Imagine, if you will, 
that you are going to college. It's a four-year school. You're going to college. You've worked hard to pay for the college. You've worked hard to pass the classes. You're a couple weeks uh, from graduation when you get a memo, memo in the mail from the college saying, we are sorry. We've received word that this college is going to have to shut down. And because of the circumstances of the shutdown, all the credits that you've worked for during the last three and a half years count for nothing. If you want to get your degree, you'll have to go to another school, but you can't actually transfer any of the credits from here because they're worthless. You're going to have to start over from ground zero again. I mean, I imagine, I mean, the sorrow that we would feel in that time, just the, the being upset and feeling like we've been investing our lives in something that is now worthless. I imagine that's a little bit of what the disciples were probably feeling as they saw those plans for Jesus to establish an earthly kingdom begin to crash down as the religious leaders are plotting against Jesus and as Judas is ready to betray him. They don't know fully what's going to happen yet, but I have a feeling they're beginning to sense that the tide is turning against Jesus. Really, the shadow of the cross is beginning to fall heavily on Jesus and his disciples. Back at the beginning of the week, just a few days earlier, there was so much excitement, so much anticipation about what was going to happen. But now that's fading. I mean, the writings on the wall that Jesus' days are numbered. Just a few days before, there were crowds shouting, Hosanna to the King. They were so excited about Jesus' coming. The disciples were looking forward to him establishing that earthly kingdom. But now, it's coming crashing down. And you can just imagine the despair the disciples would feel as they began to realize this. We now come to scene five in the story, which is the Last Supper. Judas has just agreed to betray Jesus. And Jesus and his disciples are assembled to celebrate the Passover meal. We see in verse 20 of, of Matthew 26 that when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say uh, one after another, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. So we see this impending betrayal. And, I mean, just imagine the anguish in the hearts of the disciples when they realize what's about to take place. I mean, not only is one of their own going to betray Jesus, but Jesus is alluding more and more to his coming death. And I think the reality is beginning to sink in for them a bit. But one of the things we need to understand when we think about the betrayal of Christ and also about his death is that Jesus was not out of control of what was going on here. From the disciples' perspective, it definitely would have seen like things were spiraling out of control quicker and quicker. That Jesus wanted to establish his kingdom and now is slipping out of his hands. But that was only a human perspective. Because from Jesus' perspective, it was all going exactly as planned. Back earlier in Matthew 26, Jesus actually said, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Jesus knew throughout his whole life that this is where he's going to end up. Uh, earlier this week, as I was studying this passage, I came across a verse in John chapter 10 from Jesus that I think explains very well 
what's going on here. John 10, 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. You see, when Jesus uh, was betrayed, when he was flogged, when he was crucified, he was still in complete control of what was going on. It wasn't that he lost control. It was that he recognized this is what had to happen for him to accomplish redemption for us. Jesus went on here in the, uh, in the Last Supper to talk about the, what this uh, symbolism is behind what they were doing there. It says that while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is talking about how uh, there's deep symbolism in the bread and in the cup that they were partaking there. That the bread represented his broken body, which was broken to heal us. That the cup, then wine, oftentimes now we celebrate it with grape juice, it represented the shed blood of Christ on our behalf. That's what they were celebrating then and looking ahead to. And today we are told that we should continue to celebrate the Lord's Supper on a regular basis, looking back as a reminder of what Christ has done for us. So this morning, uh, we're going to have the opportunity to remember the Last Supper as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do it in a slightly different way than we oftentimes do. We're not going to be passing trays through the pews. Instead, you're going to be able to come up here in a few moments, come to the cross, and partake of the Lord's Supper up here. You can form two lines and then return to your seats up the side aisles. You don't have to be a member or a regular tender of freedoms to join with us. If you are a person who's placed your faith in Christ for redemption, you are welcome to join with us this morning. Uh, in just a moment, um, we're going to serve the servers, and then at the appropriate time, I will invite you to come up and, and eat the bread and drink the cup, which represents what Christ has done for us out of his deep love for us. In closing uh, this morning, let us remember that if we ever doubt God's love for us, and there are many things in this life that can cause us to doubt, many of the ups and downs make it hard to fully trust in God. But if we ever doubt the love of God for us, let us remember the cross. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the cross represents Christ's love for us there's a second part that I want to highlight as we close. And so if we ever doubt God's control of the circumstances in our lives and doubt what he's doing, let us again remember the cross. When you think about the disciples, that in that last week, and in those last days, and in those last hours, they were probably wondering what in the world is going on here. We thought Jesus was in control, but now the circumstances don't make it seem like he is really in control. But we know that he was in control the whole time. He was accomplishing our redemption, resurrection, resurrection at the end of the road for him. And we can remember that for us, if we can remain faithful to him through our trials and our ups and downs, even when it seems like life is spiraling out of control, if we can just keep our eyes focused on him, we can trust that for us too, there's going to be a resurrection at the end of the road. And that is something that we can place our full hope and confidence in. So let us, as we look at the cross, remember the love of Christ 
and remember that Christ voluntarily laid down his life in our behalf. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great love. We do confess that it's easy to take your love for granted, especially if we have heard about your love for a long time. But I pray that, especially through this week, and as we go through Good Friday and Easter, that you will impress upon us in a fresh way the depth of your amazing love for us. We thank you that you loved us while we were yet sinners and that you willingly laid down your life for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.